God bless you, everybody. Wonderful to worship with you, even from afar. We just sang uh, magnificent words on Christ the solid rock I stand. So very, very helpful in this day of uncertainty. He doesn't change, and our relationship with him doesn't change. It's secure. It's the one constant we can count on. Uh, today, uh, we're... Uh, inundated once again, I'm told, by the dust from the Sahara. Who ever heard of such a thing? Saharan dust. And I don't know if you're feeling it, but I am all choked up and who knows what. It kind of makes me laugh. All of the things we're subject to, we have the gall to think we're in control of things. We're not. Far better to be controlled by our most sovereign God. I'm told the Saharan dust is, a, this has nothing to do with our lesson. I just want to ramble a little bit. I'm told the Saharan dust is actually a good thing because it keeps hurricanes from coming. I don't, my wife was sharing this with me. She's a meteorologist and understands these things. So she was explaining things to me in a simple way. The dust keeps the air down or something, and thus we don't get hurricanes, which is good, but also bad, because I'm told the Saharan dust is supposed to pass by Friday, so uh, welcome hurricanes, I guess. But the Lord is in control, and therefore we sing on Christ the solid rock, I stand. I wish the ancient people of old, the Israelites, did that. I wish they found Jesus, Yeshua, their Savior, to be their mooring point, but they didn't. And so in times past, it seems like a long time ago, we were tracing the rather sordid past of Israel through the book of Judges. And I was, to be frank with you, wanting to hold off on resuming our study in Judges until we could assemble together. But since we don't know exactly when that's going to be, I want to make sure to finish Judges before the rapture. And so we're going to resume our study tonight. I'll fill you in a little bit on it since it's been so long uh, since we took a look at this book. It's not a very positive message in the book. In fact, you can see this cycle of events, if you remember, taking place. First, Israel sins, and then Israel suffers for it, and then Israel cries out to God for mercy, and God, who is merciful, responds by delivering Israel in the form of a group of people called judges, some men, some women. They were judges, called judges because they adjudicated civil disputes, but they were more than just judges. They really were more like deliverers, if you will, many saviors. In a way, they sort of reflected Christ, but in a very small way. One of the messages of Judges I hope you have gotten and will get is that the only perfect deliverer, savior, the only legitimate judge of the earth is the Lord Jesus and therefore it's so great to be rightly related by faith to him. So Judges was written to reflect Israel's cycle of sin and suffering and then deliverance through these judges. We've looked at a number of them, and we began to look at one known as Samson, with whom you are well familiar. And we looked at some of the key events in his life, and I want for us to continue to look at Samson tonight. This puts us in Judges chapter 16, and we look just at the first few verses. Look what it says, verse 1, now Samson went to Gaza, 
a place I'll bet you're familiar with. And he saw a harlot there and he went into her. He had relations with her. Samson went mysteriously to Gaza. I say mysteriously because that was Philistine territory and the Philistines hated Samson because he had previously humiliated them and surely he was a marked man and yet in his lack of wisdom and unbridled sensuality he sought out this harlot in Gaza putting himself at great risk. Just to give you some geographical mooring points here's a little map of Israel. Isn't it Isn't it an odd shape? Look at it. It's a sliver from north to south. It's just a sliver. It's about 350 miles. It would take you about the same time to go from the southern part to the northern part of Israel as it would take you to go from here, Houston, to Dallas. Even even less time than that. It's just a narrow strip of land, and yet it is so significant in redemptive history. Well, here's the Gaza we're just reading about. Can you see it here? Gaza. It's called the Gaza Strip sometimes because it too is a narrow strip of land. It's bordered on the west, you can see, by the Mediterranean Sea over here. Again, just to give you some geographical frame of reference, to the south of Israel is Egypt. And then as you bend around here to the east, you travel up through Jordan and north to Syria and then Lebanon. So these are all of Israel's neighbors. Uh, The Mediterranean Sea is a very significant body of water in Israel, and so too is this one. This is the Dead Sea, called that because it's so mineralized, it's very difficult for vegetation and other life to grow in it. And then this body of water in the north, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's called kineret in Hebrew, which is a Hebrew word for um, harp. Because if you look at it, it's wider at the top than at the bottom, thus giving the appearance of a harp. Okay, so that's a little bit about Israel. Gaza was one of the key Philistine cities. There were five of them. And uh, Goliath was from this territory, for instance. So, so this is kind of, you might say, enemy territory for Samson, the Israelite. And yet, against, I think, good sense, he went there nonetheless. And uh, he went to seek out this lady who, whose vocation was that she was a harlot, a, a prostitute. Uh, I really hadn't thought about this a lot until I... Uh, slowed down and looked at the text. I just wonder how that happens to a woman. How does a how does a woman become a harlot? How do, how does that befall her? I I mean she's birthed as are all girls, cute little kids, and they grow and their children scampering about. What what events can you imagine? What events may have transpired in this woman's life? such that she um, exposed herself to such degradation and exploitation. How did she come to the point in her life, psychologically, where she came to the conclusion she was junk and therefore is to be treated as 
junk. She has no worth, and therefore, uh, she could be used and cast aside. It's a, a, a sorrowful thing. And this whole practice of prostitution, you know, they call it the oldest profession. It, uh, it's been going on since the be- time began, I suppose you could say. And even today, it's legal in many, many places. But you know this, don't you? The fact that something is legal doesn't make it right. Uh, uh, the fact that something is legal surely doesn't automatically make it right in the eyes of God. I mean, abortion is legal, right? Hey, don't cave in to the pressure of society. Abortion is not right in the eyes of God. Uh, uh, prostitution is not right in the eyes of God. And yet people were freely engaged in it then and now. Why is that? Well, because if you recall, the theme of uh, judges is really encapsulized or encapsulated, whatever the word is, in the very last verse of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, uh, there was no king in Israel at this time, and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Hey, welcome to America in 2020, folks. Everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. That's called chaos and anarchy. That's called the absence of restraint. Again, though something is the majority view and though something is legal doesn't make it right in the eyes of God. Well, so this lady went into a profession not recognized as being legitimate by God, prostitution. In fact, in Scripture, um, this lady, sorrowful, figure, though she may be, is depicted uh, as a victimizer even more than as a victim. Uh, Let me read this to you. Proverbs 7, verses 21 to 23. With her many persuasions, she entices him, and with her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters, chains to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it, that rendezvous with this lady will cost him his life. So though she's surely a sorrowful figure, Absolutely, Uh, yet the Bible portrays a a prostitute as a predator. And you and I know, in certain cases, due to poverty or abuse, uh, she gravitated towards this trade, and therefore she's actually a victim herself, but the scriptures depict her as a victimizer. The point is, the Bible rejects uh, prostitution as a victimless crime. Did you know we're going to talk about prostitution tonight? Kind of an odd subject. Uh, uh, the Bible does not depict it as a victimless crime. The woman is surely a victim, and the man who uses her is a victim as well. And though, as I mentioned, it's quite acceptable around the world, even legal in many places, it's absolutely uh, contrary to God's design. You see, Scripture teaches, you know this, right? Scripture teaches that the only authorized context for the expression of sexual intimacy is marriage. 
Therefore, we can conclude quite easily that any sexual behavior outside of marriage is, in the eyes of God, to be considered wrong, and therefore prostitution is wrong. In fact, throughout the Bible, prostitution is depicted as a symbol of unfaithfulness and filthiness. God even likens his covenant people, Israel, to prostitutes when they uh, turn away from him to false gods. Now, all that being said, you realize, don't you, that prostitutes can be forgiven? (laughs) That anyone can be pardoned? You realize that God's grace is greater than anybody's sin. You realize that merciful God is not only able, but quite willing and ready to forgive and to cleanse. In fact, we have a record of at least two prostitutes in the Bible who entered into the forgiveness and cleansing grace of Almighty God. The first one such lady was Rahab. You remember her? Joshua sent two spies to Jericho to kind of uh, go on a reconnaissance mission. While there, this lady, Rahab, hid those two spies in her home, I guess in an attic or something. Later on, she came to, by faith, embrace the God of those two spies, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She came to have an encounter by faith with the one true God, and she was saved, pardoned, and absolutely cleansed. And then there was a second lady, a prostitute. In this case, she was unnamed, but uh, we read about her in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. The Lord, it was a dinner kind of a party. The Lord was invited to dinner at the home of a very uh, religious man, a Pharisee. While there, a woman, a prostitute, I really don't think she was an invited guest, uh, but she showed up anyway, hearing that this marvelous Jesus was there. So she came, and she didn't come empty-handed. She brought an alabaster jar um, filled with costly perfume with which she, while weeping, anointed the Lord's feet. She sought the Lord's forgiveness, and she found it. And he said to her, your sins, yeah, even the sin of prostitution, your sins have been forgiven Your faith has saved you. And then he said, go in shalom, go in peace. And so you see, uh, no sin committed by you or I or any of us is beyond the reach of the superabundance of God's grace. I hope you have found his grace to be sufficient for any sin you may have committed. For the first time in her life, these two ladies found forgiveness and peace with God. Now, this being said, the Bible does not permit women to enter into the vocation of prostitution. So if you're thinking about it, don't do it. In fact, the Bible is pretty clear on this subject. Look, 1 Corinthians 6.15, don't you know your bodies, physical bodies, are members of Christ? In some way, I don't fully understand, yet by faith, we have become the body of Christ. We're merged with him in essence. Our identity is no longer ours alone. We're joined to Christ. Shall I then take away the members of Christ 
and make them members of a prostitute. Well, Paul doesn't wait for us to respond. He says, may it never be. By the way, that's the strongest way in Greek to say no. May it never be. Don't join yourself to a prostitute, says Paul, because you are fundamentally by faith now joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at this one in Proverbs 6.26. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to corrupt our physical being we who are temples of the Holy Spirit by sexual activity outside of his will. Now back to our opening verse, Judges 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there, and he went into her. He shouldn't have been there. He went there. He saw a harlot. Uh, this one got my attention, this word. I think Solomon, I mean Samson, had an eye problem. Good night. He's always feasting his gaze on things he ought not be feasting his gaze on. He should be looking to God and his word, and instead he's looking wrongly. He's, his eye gate is always getting him into trouble. By the way, men, this is a huge problem for us. We start getting into trouble, of course, in our head, and then in particular for our eyes. You and I really have to work hard at watching what we're prone to watch, especially on the computer. I'd be really, really careful uh, about you, my fellow man, having private access to your computer. Let someone you trust uh, have access to it as well so you don't wander even unintentionally, to a site that you shouldn't be on. So Samson had an eye problem for sure. He saw a harlot there, and he went into her, which is kind of a biblical euphemism for sexual intercourse. That's, that's what he did there. Samson had relational problems. Uh, I'm, an, I'm analyzing him from a counselor's point of view. He spent so much time doing his own thing. He's kind of a loner, never took counsel from anyone. We don't have any record of him having friends. Even when he previously married, which I'll tell you about in just a second, uh, they had to supply guests. He didn't even have friends to invite to the wedding. And so Samson had trouble, I think, relationally. He was a strong guy physically, but I think kind of weak relationally. And yet God created Samson and all of us with a need for relationships and, and good close relationships. And so since Samson didn't know how to have healthy relationships, I think he sought to have his legitimate God-given need met illegitimately. So that's the problem with you and I as well. We have legitimate God-given needs, and the rub comes when we try to meet our needs outside of his will. And that's exactly what, well, that's what Samson did. And so uh, created for intimacy, he sought it, but intimacy without risk. Yeah. So not a real uh, bond, not a solid, sincere relationship, not an exchange of anything except physical stuff, not an intellectual exchange, uh, not a real romantic exchange, surely not 
a spiritual exchange, just body on body is all we got here. And uh, it's, he gave himself to, to what someone termed false intimacy. God given need for intimacy, but this was a counterfeit of it. Instead of doing the hard work of relationship development and patience and waiting and nurture and cultivating the relationship, you can bypass all of that and you can just get someone, in this case a harlot, with whom you can engage in false intimacy. No risks whatsoever. And you can fool yourself into thinking that's the real thing when in fact it is not. So there he is deep in Philistine territory all by himself, thinking himself because he's physically strong to be invincible. And it caused him to be so arrogant and so cocky, deep in enemy territory at great risk and not realizing it. He had previously tried marriage and boy, did that ever blow up. And so now he's giving himself to another attempt at relationship, but not God's way at all. He thinks it's intimacy, but it is not. It's false intimacy. And yet he chooses it because you have to, there's no need to make a commitment in that kind of relationship. And I think Samson was afraid of commitment. He has a a real sick heart, I must tell you. He has a restless heart. As you trace Samson's life, the guy's always on the move. He's always leaving home area, going somewhere almost at random. It's because something is missing, don't you see? And he's trying to fill the void. God is missing. And that God-shaped void in Samson's life cannot be met except by God. And so he's looking here and there. He's trying this. He's trying that. That's the way it is when we refuse satisfaction from a close relationship with our maker, then we're obligated to seek satisfaction elsewhere. It won't work. Solomon's sin was not sexual. No, no, that's just the symptom of it. His sin was spiritual. Here's what the sin was. Autonomy from God. That's what it is. He sought independence of God. Here's what I mean. If Solomon could find a way to increase his pleasure and decrease his pain, then he doesn't need God. He doesn't have to wait on God. He doesn't have to look to God, pray to him, or depend on him. Nope, 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 nope. If Solomon found a way to increase pleasure and decrease pain without God, then he could live without God. That's the fundamental sin. He, you, and I commit. The symptom may be specific, but fundamentally, this is it. Our mad quest for autonomy from God. That's what Samson is doing here. And so we read on in verse 2, when it was told the Gazites, the people who lived there, saying, hey, Samson has come here. They surrounded the place, and they laid in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. That's where business was conducted. They kept silent all night. See, they were hiding. They said, let's wait until the morning and then we'll kill him. But it didn't work out that way. I guess Samson figured out they were there waiting to get him. And so verse 3 tells us around midnight, he got up and he took hold. Imagine this. He took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, metal, and pulled them up along with the bars, also metal, and then he put them on his shoulders 
and he carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite a place called Hebron. So here's an actual picture of Samson doing this. Not really, just a reasonable facsimile. I chose it to show you he didn't pick up a hollow core door, the likes of which you and I have in our homes. No, this was solid wood, metal hinges, metal bars to hold it together. People who are smarter than me have uh, uh, estimated that the weight of this thing could have been 700 pounds. Could you imagine how super strong this guy is to remove it from its mooring point and to carry it as far as the text tells us he did? Now, the Philistines were not only affected by his enormous strength, they were affected by what he did. You see, he just humiliated them. I'll tell you what I mean. In those days, ancient cities were walled, and the main entranceway was the gate. And the gate, one like this, was a symbol of safety and security for the residents therein. So for this Israelite to absolutely rip up the symbol of safety and security that the Philistines were depending on was essentially to say to them, you ain't safe and you're not secure when I'm around. And so he absolutely humiliated them and they weren't happy. And so we read this in verse four. After this, his encounter with the harlot and then the ripping up the gate from its mooring points. After this, it came about that he loved, really? I don't know. Maybe he thought so. Mind if I substitute? He lusted. All right. He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was, you remember her, don't you? They make movies about her, Delilah. Another woman. So uh, here we go again. This is the third woman, Scripture tells us, Solomon was involved with. All three of them are Philistines. And God made it clear previously he did not want the Israelites messing around with the Philistines. He wanted his covenant people to be holy and sacred and apart. And so what is it with Solomon? Aren't there any good-looking Hebrew girls around for him? Why does he gravitate to, to off-limits people? What is it? I don't. There's just something in him, in us. Well, I think it's called sin. That caused him again to do something entirely irrational. So there's a pattern with with Samson going after these Philistine women. And so we read now in verse five, the lords of the Philistines, you take my word for it, there are five of them. There were five Philistine cities. One was Gath, G-A-T-H, Goliath from Gath. Then there's Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza, etc. So there are five of them. The lords of the Philistines, they came up to her. They came up to Delilah. They said, entice him. See where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him. Listen, they got smart. They knew we cannot confront this guy head on. He'll kill us. He's a beast. Therefore, uh, they tried to circumvent a head-on confrontation with a foe they can't handle. And so they go to Delilah and they say, you find out where his great strength lies. Tell us how we can overpower him, that we can bind him and we want to afflict him, and here's the deal. They say to her, then, 
if you tell us the secret of his power, we will each, each, so there's five of them, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So if you do the math, that's a lot of money. Uh, 5,500 pieces of silver, which is like a fortune in those days. That's the deal. Delilah is in love, but, but, but not with Samson. Oh, no. She's really in love with money. And so this deal seemed actually quite attractive uh, to her. And so we read this in our final verse for tonight. So Delilah heard the deal. Uh, Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength is. Tell me where your great strength is and uh, how you may be bound <laughs> uh, to afflict you. And you're saying, wait, what is, what kind of a deal is that for Samson? He's not that impaired is he intellectually to know that this is a deal he ought to enter into tell me the source of your great power and tell me how you you may be bound to afflict you and yet you'll see much more next time when we get together lord willing that's exactly what he does I don't think he was suffering from an intellectual deficit it was worse than that folks do you realize that when we refuse to repent of a pattern of sin we just get hardened in all respects and we can't even think straight and so this guy couldn't even think straight at this point therefore Delilah enticed by this promise of wealth uh, wants to persuade her so-called romantic partner to reveal to her the source of his strength well, I was thinking about this a little bit. Uh, first, apparently the source of his strength wasn't obvious. Tell me if you think I'm right about this. That tells me he didn't look like Hercules or somebody. He didn't look like someone from Gold's Gym. I mean, if he looked like one of those guys with the muscles she would not have had to ask him for the source of his strength. She would have attributed it to his biceps. Therefore, since that was not the case, I wonder if he was just a little skinny Jewish guy like me. Maybe. Actually, I think so. Because you and I know the source of his strength was not inherently in him. It's not a result of doing push-ups. The source of his strength was almighty God. Therefore... I think he should have told her the source of his strength, but he didn't. He kept it hidden from her. She and others wanted to know, how do you explain your life? What's the, what makes you who you are? Solomon should have said, Almighty God did. The God who I'm in a relationship with, he is who has made me who I am. And yet he didn't do that. He withheld it from Delilah, and therefore Delilah never had a chance, maybe by faith, to embrace the very source of strength, the God who Samson knew of. And so in conclusion, um, I would like for myself and you, <laughs> maybe not to be like Samson, well, in many respects, but in this one in particular, in this rather challenging day in which we live, 
Let's not withhold from those around us the source of our strength. There's a verse of scripture in the New Testament. I do read the New Testament uh, uh, once in a while. 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to those who ask you to give an account for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. In this day and age, when someone you encounter looks to you, wants to know about your perception and perspective on what's happening to us today, maybe even sees in you a kind of a peace and a calm that can explain. And when they ask you a question sort of to, to explain your life, Please don't be hesitant. I'm saying this to myself too. Please don't be hesitant to say, please listen, let me tell you my story. There might have been a time when I'd be overwhelmed by circumstances just as you are today. I'm not better than you, but I came to find a better way. No, I came to find a better one. I came to find out that transcendent deity who sits on the throne wanted a personal relationship with me, which could not be established because of my sin. Therefore, he sent a remedy for my sin. It's the very person of his son, Jesus, who became sin on my behalf. A bridge into a relationship with sovereign, fully in control, compassionate God. And he is the source of my strength and my peace and my hope. And he can be yours too. If you know Jesus that way, ask him to give you a chance during these tumultuous times, to use these times as an opportunity to tell somebody that Jesus is the source of your strength. That's what we pray, Lord Jesus, that this very week, even before we gather together again in this fashion, you might give us eyes to see the opportunities before us during these difficult times to help people to know in a personal relationship with you, there's not only the forgiveness of sin, but we could also be saved from fear and hopelessness and dismay and despondency and those things because though we are affected by the coronavirus and other things as is everybody else, still we have hope because of the source of our strength, you, Lord Jesus. I pray you would make something of this day that redounds to your glory And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.